This is a Federal News Network podcast. Perhaps on purpose, but the administration has offered only vague guidance on when or if or which federal employees must return to their offices. Mostly the schedule has been made up agency by agency. So can they force you back? And if you're in a bargaining unit, is any of this negotiable? We get some insight from federal employment attorney John Mahoney. And John, what's your take on the ability of the government to make people come back? Bottom line is that management and agencies have inherent management authority or inherent management right to determine the number, the place, and the type of work that employers are going to be offered. So first and foremost, the employers have the right to determine where people are going to work. So in this case, the State of the Union was March 1st. The president said that the federal government is going to lead the way in returning workers to the workplace. Since then, the administration issued the National COVID-19 Preparedness Plan, in which it was set forth that federal employees would set the example for this new stage of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is returning to the workplace. Since April 1, many of the federal agencies are starting to return their workforces to the office. There is no government-wide OPM policy to do so. Each agency has its own authority in terms of whether and when federal employees are to return to the workforce. And so it's really a specific mission uh, determination agency by agency when employees are going to be required to come back to work. In terms of rights to bargain, certainly bargaining unit covered federal employees can negotiate the impact and implementation of the return to work instructions by the agency at issue. And I do see, you know, worldwide, we're seeing a fair degree of pushback from federal employees who have gotten used to working from home over the last two and a half years or so and don't really see the need or the import as to whether or why they have to return to the office all of a sudden. Sure. And just getting back to the bargaining unit question for a moment, I've heard several bargaining units from AFGE, I think, have said that they have negotiated some issues with returning, such as, I guess, hygienic protocols or separation, that kind of thing. Do we know the extent to which this is negotiable, and would it vary from contract to contract? Well, generally, you know, the inherent management right is to determine where employees work. So the agencies have the right to issue the order to return to work, and then it's a matter of how that's going to be implemented. That's certainly negotiable, and the unions are bargaining over the impact of implementation of the order. In terms of grievances on the back end, Obviously, and what I do for a living is deal with prohibited personnel practice complaints. So if employees feel like they're being treated disparately in terms of how the return to work order is being applied, then if they believe they're being treated differently because of their race, color, sex, national origin, age, disability, religion, prior EO activity status, they can file an EO complaint with their agency's EO office. If they believe they're being forced back to work, And similarly situated employees are being allowed to continue to work from home, and that's motivated by some other prohibited personnel practice rationale, such as whistleblower retaliation or retaliation for complaint or grievance activity. They can file a complaint with the Office of Special Counsel and ultimately an individual right of action appeal with the Merit System Protection Board. Sure. So employees do have a lot of options to try to resist the return to work orders. Ultimately, though, you know, the golden rule of employment law is to obey now and grieve later. So if employees are ordered to return to the workplace, their safest move is to follow the order, comply with the order. And if they believe 
the application of the order is really disparate treatment toward them based on a protected class membership. They can either file the EEO complaint if it's an EEO issue or an Office of Special Counsel complaint if it's whistleblower retaliation or grievance retaliation. And then certainly bargaining unit employees who feel like, you know, the order itself is just wrong in terms of the application to them, whether or not it's a prohibited personnel practice, they can certainly file a grievance through their grievance procedure. We're speaking with John Mahoney. He's founder and managing partner of the law firm bearing his own name. So if someone then were to complain about a situation in the office, maybe there's not enough barriers or people sick, whatever the case might be, some kind of health-related issue from the aftermath of the pandemic, then you can't retaliate against them. Management is obligated to deal with that complaint, correct? They do. They are obligated to deal with the complaint. Certainly, you see that coming to fruition, most likely in a reasonable accommodation for a disability situation. So if a federal employee believes that returning to the office would compromise their health or they would have an adverse reaction with regard to their physical or psychological disability, they can seek reasonable accommodation under the Rehab Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act. And then the agency would have to prove that the request to remain on full-time telework or full-time remote work is an undue burden on the agency's operation. The way it plays out typically, I think, in this situation is that it's going to be very difficult for federal agencies to prove that having people continue on full-time telework or remote work is an undue burden, given the fact that the employees have worked on telework or remote work for the last two and a half years or so. And so especially if the employee's performance ratings have been fully successful or above during the last two annual rating cycles, I think it's going to be a hard thing for an agency to show that remaining on telework or remote work would be an undue burden on their agency mission. So I do see that that's going to be a problem for management in terms of forcing people to come back to work if they were on a reasonable accommodation. And the same goes for religious exemptions. You know, there's a lot of religious exemption or accommodation requests surrounding the vaccination requirement, which is still applicable now or is newly put back in place in terms of being active for federal employees. Federal employees are covered by the vaccine mandate, which is now reinstated. So if they have some religious objection to having to take the vaccine, then they can seek to have a reasonable accommodation for their religious beliefs. So it is going to be a very complicated period, this return to work order since the State of the Union address. And I think it's going to really end up being something that federal agencies are going to have to come up with a hybrid solution in order to keep their employees happy. Right. And I wanted to bear in on that because can you offer telework options based on people's performance? Like, well, this person does better when they're here versus when they're there, if it's even possible to determine that? Or are managers on safer ground just simply having a uniform policy on hybrid Monday and Friday, you can work at home or whatever the case might be for everybody in their unit? Well, it can be very tailored to a specific performance metrics. If the agency can prove that the employee is not performing as effectively or efficiently working from home, they can make the argument that the employee should return to work especially federal employees that have to deal with members of the public in person. It's almost a condition of their job duties that they work from the office in order to deal with customer relations issues. And so for front-facing federal employees that interact with the public on a day-to-day basis, I think it's going to be hard for them to resist the return to work order. 
folks that really don't deal in person with members of the public and can perform the basic functions of their duties from home, I think the agencies are going to really need to come up with a sort of a hybrid uh, remote work or, or telework arrangement so as to recognize both the employee desires to work from home, as well as the other political factors that forcing people to commute back and forth to work lead to. You know, it's much better for the environment that people don't have to commute back and forth by car every day, as we have done for decades. And if they can perform the duties of their job from home and they have effectively done so and their ratings have been fully successful or above for the past two years, I think the agencies you know, should work out a deal with their employees that they can work so many days from home or so many days in the office. Right. So managers then should really abandon their personal preference in this whole situation and really look at the performance, look at the objectives of the mission and base their decisions there, not on whether they like to count noses. Exactly. Yep. That's going to be the wave of the future. You know, working on a hybrid telework arrangement is definitely the future for workplace scenarios, both in the private sector and in the federal sector. John Mahoney is founder and managing partner of the law firm bearing his own name. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader 
that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she would always manage to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated, uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit, and then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we meet our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay black women. Uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka. So I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a signal effect of what other people are going to expect 
as black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience, and to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and often times based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind, to convince people, but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves. I, I saw you on a post uh, with a Washington Post um, uh, interview, and it you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is sponsored in part by U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card. You're the boss of your own life, but are you the boss of your own finances? Here at the Jordan Harbinger Show, we don't shy away from real-life conversations, and of course, one of the most taboo topics is always finances. U.S. Bank offers a wide range of credit cards for a wide variety of financial needs, and one of its most useful cards is the U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card. With a low introductory APR for 20 billing cycles, this card is a tool for getting ahead. The U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card is a savvy financial tool for large purchases, unexpected expenses, and balance transfers. And with the ability to customize your payment date, this card gives you control over your financial future. Apply now at usbank.com platinum. With the U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card, have peace of mind for all your financial needs. To see if you qualify, visit usbank.com slash platinum. Limited time offer. The creditor and issuer of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA, Inc. Some restrictions may apply. Hi, I'm here on USPTO. It's almost the end of the year, and if you don't put me on a timesheet, I will be gone forever. Use me or lose me. Let's get away. It's getaway time. Get our best deals of the season on a new Hyundai. It's your journey. Own every mile at the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Now, get 0% APR for up to 36 months, plus zero payments for 90 days on select Hyundai vehicles. Hurry to your local Hyundai dealer today. Now, during the Hyundai Getaway Sales Event. Offer ends 1-323. Call 1-562-314-4603 for complete offer details.